Good afternoon, Chad. Good morning, Sean. My uh, my consistency with asking people to introduce themselves at the beginning of the podcast is 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 high. I'm consistent. I consistently forget. So let's get this out of the way. Tell us a bit about uh, who you are and what you do. Uh, you have just broken your consistency. I know. Well, hey, a new day. Okay, I am Chad Fowler, and I am currently. CTO at Wonderlist in Berlin. Um, I've been a Ruby programmer for a long time and a Rails programmer for a long time, um, like a really long time, longer than, than I guess most people who say they've been these things for a long time. And uh, well, that's probably most of the interesting stuff about me right now. We can talk more right. so as we go. How long have you been a Ruby programmer? I started in the year 2000. Wow. Wow. So, oh, that's fun. So, given that most people found Ruby through Rails, and obviously you did not then, how did you find Ruby? So, I used to learn a new language every weekend. Um, not very well, obviously, but it was a Saturday morning thing. I, I woke up early because I had a team in India, so I got in kind of permanently jet lagged. I was living in the Eastern time zone in the U.S. at the time. And uh, yeah, so I'd wake up like long before my wife as a result, four or five in the morning. Um, and, and I actually had decided pretty strongly that I was going to go ahead and zero in on small talk as my next big focus. And I've been doing Perl and Java primarily for work, a bit of C. And my last Saturday that I was going to learn new languages, because I was actually kind of scouting for the next one, uh, before the next week where I was just going to dedicate myself to small talk, um, it was Ruby. And uh, I, how did I find out about Ruby? I think Dave Thomas or Andy Hunt posted something on the extreme programming mailing list about Ruby, which I was into and on at the time. And, and so I tried it. It was actually really hard to get started because there was almost no documentation in English. And because it was before the Pickaxe book came out. Mm -hmm. And uh, that day, I rewrote my weblog site in Ruby uh, with ERB and everything and, and deployed it. So it was like, I, I thought, maybe I'll be able to do Hello World and get everything installed. And I was so productive in one day, I was totally hooked. And I never did make that jump into, into really becoming a small talk programmer that I had expected to. Did it cause you to quit your Saturday morning ritual to learn new languages? Uh, for a while, yeah. Actually, it's probably one of the last ones um, that I really dug into like that. Uh, it, I know I haven't stopped learning languages since then, but I've gotten more on the once a year kind of train instead of once a weekend. <laughs> it kind of seems like a slightly more reasonable goal. Yeah, well, eventually you run out of languages that, that are reasonable to learn and provide any any new benefits, you know, once you cover all the, the different categories that you can find. Um, I think I had kind of exhausted everything that I could get that was open source, in fact, around that time. Even, even playing with some of the esoteric stuff that people don't really use, uh, I think I was kind of done. I was talking to a coworker about this the other day, that since I have paused that sort of obsessive search through crazy languages, because I thought I had run out of them, a bunch have been created, so I could actually kind of get back on that train for a while if I wanted to. 
so between 2000 when you first learned Ruby <clears throat> and uh, I don't know 2005, were you using Ruby uh, personally or professionally or a bit of both? A bit of both. It was it was my hobby. Um, in fact, in in 2001, I was convinced by Dave Thomas to help organize the first RubyConf, hmm. and so it became a really uh, time-consuming hobby in various ways because I continued to help organize. RubyConf until 2012, or I think 2012. Uh, but I started using it work uh, pretty much immediately. We had production systems within a few weeks of me learning Ruby, uh, much to the chagrin of some of my coworkers. Um, I was also using Ruby, as a lot of people were back then, to generate production code in other languages because we could do. We didn't call it DSLs back then, but we could do our own kind of domain-specific languages for writing Java code or even COBOL code in one case. So what was uh, what was RubyConf like in those first couple of years? Well, the first one, we, we used to follow Oopsla, which I guess doesn't even exist, which is sort of a bummer because I always wanted to go to Oopsla. But um, we would follow it, and so we would wait until Oopsla was planned uh, and try to find a cheap location near where Oopsla was going to be and be like for Oopsla. And we did that because no one could really justify RubyConf by itself. But a lot of people were going to Oopsla so they would get their companies to pay and they'd just go a couple days earlier and, and do RubyConf. Um, the first one was in Tampa in 2001 in October. It was actually um, I think I flew to Tampa exactly one month after the September 11th, September 11th uh, tragedy. Um, and there were 34 attendees, including you know all the speakers and organizers and everyone, 34 people. So uh, the, the crowd was, um, I think it was 100% male, which is pretty sad. Um, very much early adopter kind of people. There were, there were people who um, were building their own VMs for other languages, so they were just language nerds that weren't even into Ruby. Um, there were how many people? Something like four or five uh, authors slash original signers of the Agile Manifesto there, which is a pretty high high percentage uh, of the crowd. So we clearly had a big XP contingent um, and Agile con contingent. Like Ron Jeffries did a talk there, um, and Chet Hendrickson, Dave, and Andy, of course, were there. A lot of authors of the books that I've been reading at the time. So it was really this this super nerdy thing where you could very much know the name of everyone in the room, and by the end of the experience, you knew everyone. Um, many of these people are, for me, uh, lifelong friends, and that's where it started, actually. It's the first RubyConf. Well, it seems like in then in a few dimensions, both your kind of the, your personal life and your professional life and your hobbyist life, that getting into Ruby in 2000 was a big deal. That was a big choice to make. Oh yeah, I got really lucky. Just, you know, I was playing with all kinds of stupid languages at the time, and and uh, I cannot claim that, that like somehow I could see the future and I thought Ruby was going to be big. I didn't at all. I just thought it was fun. I loved it and. Uh, 
And fortunately for me, I loved it more than some of the other fun, crazy things I was playing with. But like people at work literally laughed at me when I would talk about Ruby. Um, <laughs> did they think you were funny in general or just that one choice? <laughs> well, that was one of the, the choices. They, <laughs> they thought my like, music taste was weird in probably exactly the same way. It was just another crazy thing I did, you know. Uh, I think I'll give you credit for spotting Ruby because, I mean, I think you were in a pretty good position given your your habit of learning new you know, languages or at least you know, taste testing new languages to to have a feel for what was different, um, it, I would think. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I think that's not my credit to get, though. That's Ruby. Ruby sucked me in. Um, and like a lot of the people that were snickering at me for using it, if they really played with it, they would have been sucked into it, too. So I didn't have some crystal ball or, or any ability to know that Ruby was going to take off. And I really didn't care. I liked the fact that, you know, the way I described this first RubyConf, other than the fact that there was a serious problem with diversity, the attendees there were amazing. You know, I learned so much just sitting and listening to people argue at lunch at RubyConf that first year. Um, I love that, that small community that we had back then. So since you were in the Ruby community from the, from the beginning, at least here in the U.S., and then Rails uh, was released, I don't know, maybe four or five years later. What was that experience like? Was it, a, was it a, a, an exciting, good thing that Rails came out? Or did you have mixed feelings? Or how did that, how'd that go for you? It was almost entirely exciting and good. And certainly the, the exciting and good stuff outweighed everything. Um, you, you know, like, I was never really into language advocacy, except when I was just really young, because that's what stupid young people do, I guess. They, they want everyone to think the same thing they think. But I, I really wasn't into that. But it was still exciting that, like at RubyConf, every year we used to ask the, the attendees to raise their hand if they were getting paid full-time to work in Ruby. And from my perspective, the only reason to care about language advocacy or any kind of technical advocacy thing in general is if you're going from not being able to work in the environment that you're really excited about to being able to. And for a long time, it was only Rich Kilmer and Matts who were getting paid full-time. Um, and Rich Kilmer, just because, I think, just through force of will, he made it happen for himself. And Matts, of course, created the language. So after Rails came out, literally the next year, it was suddenly lots of people. It wasn't the whole audience. It wasn't even a majority, but it was a lot of people. And I would guess now, if you ask the same question, it would be almost everyone in the in the audience was could get paid to work in a Ruby full time. There are probably some people who aren't because they don't even want to anymore. You know, they're they're doing something else. But that was really exciting. That was it changed everything and it allowed us all to work on this thing that we had been doing as a a passion passionate hobby for a long time. So uh, given your uh, use of Ruby earlier, did you see something like Rails as a framework as an inevitability? As in, did Ruby, did sort of Ruby's core traits, um, I don't know, uh, predict in some way that Rails would eventually be created in kind of the way that it feels? Or do you think that, that it wasn't that obvious and it took some, some additional luck and, and I don't know, a genius is strong, but luck and, and solid work by DHH to kind of invent something new. In other words, is like, was Rails sitting within Ruby kind of ready to be discovered, or was it invented separately? 
so it's, inter it's an interesting question. From one perspective, like when I saw Rails and I saw the what we now call internal DSL of Rails, you know, the has many's and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, yeah, that's obvious. Everything in this is obvious. And I, because I knew Ruby already really well, I could just look at it and guess how it worked. Um, so from that perspective, it was certainly ready to be written. The language was perfect for Rails. Um, from the other perspective, though, nobody had done anything like it before, just in, in Ruby, but anywhere. Uh, I don't think Genius, um, it's... If I had seen that this was coming, I would have just done it because I knew how to do everything that was in Rails. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that vision, though, and no one had that vision before David did it. So I think he deserves to be called, at least that move deserves to be called genius. So do you think, um, so what was the, the critical extra bit that came in? So if, if the, call it the DSL or the syntax was sort of Ruby-y and not new to any, any Rubyists that would have seen it, is it the convention over configuration kind of push and the, the you know, let's have a set way to do everything and folder structures and all that jazz? Or is it, was it something else that was the kind of the extra invention? So if, if you had to pick a technical thing, it would be convention over configuration, and I think that actually changed the industry. Rails led the way, and everything got better after that. But it wasn't a technical thing that allowed David to apply convention over configuration. I think what allowed him to do it, the thing that I was missing, a lot of people were missing, is... Uh, some special trait he has to look at something, look at a, uh, a context, uh, which most people accept as just the way it is, and say, this should be radically easier, or this should be radically simpler. And I think he does this in business. He does this all over the place. You know, David himself does this. Mm -hmm. And he just happened to do it in the field of web development. Um, and convention over configuration was just part of it. Uh, it's probably the, the biggest technical part, but to me, it's only just a manifestation of his ability to see through what we all accept as just the way things are and to take out all the extra garbage that you shouldn't have to do from it. Right. So, so it's overall sort of aggressive counter stance against friction is sort of the thing that, that it got. Yeah, right. I guess that's a good way to say it, yeah. Hmm. So when did you switch to, to writing Ruby as your full-time job? Uh, it was 2005. Yeah, it was 2005. I had been working for a, a large corporation from 99 to the end of 2004, where you couldn't really, I mean, for a lot of it, I was a manager even, so I was setting up a uh, development center in India and, and not even programming. But when I was programming, I was working on huge C and Java systems, so I wasn't able to work in Ruby back there. Um, in 2005, it was like it was back when the Rails weblog would post every job that was advertised in the world for Rails, um, and one of them sounded interesting to me, and I emailed the people and said, "Maybe I'd like to talk about this," and and then they responded and said, "Okay, you can work for us." So I did. What was that first job? Uh, it was a company called Navience that makes uh, software for high schools. Hmm. Are they still, still around? They, they're still in business. Um, I think they were 
purchased by another large education company. Uh, I worked there with another guy named Bruce Williams, um, who has gone on to do all kinds of great stuff. Uh, he ended up working with us at Info Ether after that and Living Social. Um, but yeah, it was just the two of us working on this Rails system together. The Rails was, was terrible by comparison back then, um, by comparison to today. It was better than everything else. But if I think back to that project, our code was just hideous. It was amazing. And, and like, if you were a Rails programmer from somewhere else and you came into the project, you'd be absolutely lost because <laughs> there were so many conventions still waiting to be discovered or implemented in Rails that, yeah, I would hate to see that code right now. I think that's an interesting observation because, you know, back then the adulation that Rails received was, at least from a certain type of person, seemed, you know, almost over the top. And then now the, the code is so much better. Rails is so solid, yet I think the percentage of people that complain about this and that has gone up a lot. Maybe that's just... Yeah, well, what that's happens. just what happens. Yeah, exactly. People like to complain. But, <laughs> but yeah, you know, back then we were just all in love because it was new. And and I would say that almost everything that's happened since then has been But uh, there have been a lot of incremental improvements since then. It's just it's easy to forget that even though Rails was amazing and was beautiful compared to what we were doing back then, it's gotten so much more amazing and beautiful over time through many contributions of other either geniuses or just hard workers that have helped, you know, from an open source perspective to make it better. So how would you characterize your current relationship with Rails? Um, I'm kind of bored with it, to tell you the truth. Uh, it's a thing. It's a really great tool for getting things done. Um, and in my world, I see it. It's kind of funny. Like the argument we used to have is like Ruby and Rails are just toys. You can use them for prototyping, but can't do real production work. And uh, obviously, that's not true. But that's kind of how I use it. Um, if I write something in Rails, I hope that a time will come when I want to rewrite it in something else because I want it to perform better or be cheaper to run. Um, so there are like practical reasons that, that I use a lot of different things these days. But Rails is still the tool, and Ruby, are, you know, they're both still tools for me that I can wield with much greater power than most others, only because I've been using them so long, and I've spent so much time working on mastering them. Um, so what are, the, uh, what are the other tools that you're using more now what gets you what, what tool do you have the, the best relationship with I guess <laughs> what's not boring um, well th those are different questions so like if if I want to just be excited about playing around with something in the way that I used to be excited about Ruby back then I will probably be playing with Haskell um, which is funny because I started learning Haskell at RubyConf 2001 but I never it never really stuck but a bunch of us got together there and said, hey, let's all learn Haskell. And, and, a, and a few of us started working through a book together after the conference. Uh, but in production at uh, Six Wonderkinder for Wonderlist, we're using uh, a lot of Rails plus a little Sinatra, so still Ruby. And then we're doing Scala, Clojure, Go, Node, um, Python, a bunch of different things, depending on 
uh, a couple of factors, one being what is the best tool for the job, and the other being what does the developer who's working on it really feel like doing that gets them excited about coming to work in the morning. So those are both, both contributors that are uh, totally okay for making a decision on what language you use here. Which is the bigger contributor? Is it developer you know, happiness, familiarity, or is it you know, fit with the job? Uh, it's probably the former. It's probably developer happiness, but everyone always chooses something that, that works for the job at hand. You know, like we have one of the things that I've done um, is a uh, high-performance WebSocket proxy service uh, for the new version of Wonderlist that we're working on that will come out sometime in the next month or so, where... Um, it's a really cool design, actually. I think we, we wanted to use WebSockets for um, real-time communication to our clients. Our clients are all cross-platform, so pretty much any platform you can think of, we've written a client in. Um, but we decided we would also use it, the WebSocket connection that they already have open to send all of their otherwise REST requests. Hmm. So I built this service in Scala with the Play Framework, which... Um, the Play Framework just makes doing the WebSocket stuff really easy. Everything is asynchronous by default, and all of the, the HTTP calls that you make out of the server as a client are also asynchronous by default. So it's just this really neat package for, I mean, effectively, system in place, we can DOS our, our back-end infrastructure with just a couple of clients now because this proxy thing can perform so well, you can just throw requests at it, stack them up, and it will do them as fast as it can in parallel. Hmm. Um, so we have a lot of things like that where it's just, you know, you could have done that in Clojure, Node, or Go, but I wanted to use Play because I like the way it's designed, and and uh, I'm amazed to hear myself say this, but Scala is really uh, fitting the way I think these days, more so than Clojure or something else. So I've written zero lines of Scala. What's the, what's the uh, thumbnail description of what one would like about it? So the thumbnail description is that there can't be a thumbnail description of it. That's <laughs> both, both a blessing and a curse. You can think of it as a weird, statically typed Ruby kind of thing, or you can think of it as Java++ with a lot less keystrokes required, or you can think of it as an impure but more practical probably Haskell-type language sitting on the JVM. So there's something for everyone. Unfortunately, that means it's really hard to get into because you can just do so much with it. So this is a good segue. I'm going to take a break and read our uh, first sponsor uh, since it's all about learning new things. So uh, our first sponsor today is lynda.com. Um, you can go to lynda.com, that's L-Y-N-D-A.com slash Ruby on Rails to, to learn more. Lynda.com offers thousands of video courses and software, creative, and business skills. Everything from web development and user experience to photography and video editing. They have over 2,400 courses taught by industry experts. They work with software companies to provide you with updated training the same day that new versions hit the market so that you're always up to speed. They've got courses for all beginner or all experience levels from beginner all the way to advanced. And the, uh, the monthly price is only 25 bucks. That gives you unlimited access to the entire lynda.com library. So I've got a handful of courses that may 
fit the audience. We've got Ruby on Rails 4, Essential Training, uh, PHP with MySQL. Do you say MySQL or MySQL, John? Me? Me? I guess I say MySQL, but I feel bad about myself when I say it. I, I do too. I just had to say that out loud so everyone knows that I felt bad also when I just said that. So uh, JavaScript, Git, HTML, etc. I'm not sure if they have uh, Go or Scala or Node. Probably Node. But, yeah. uh, but uh, you should go and check out lynda.com slash Ruby on Rails to, to learn more. Um, we've got a special deal that allows you, if you go there, to get uh, access to their entire library. That's all the videos in all the courses for seven days. Um, you have to go to lynda.com slash Ruby on Rails, and right from that page, you can start your free trial. So thank you to lynda.com. All right. So uh, tell me a bit more about Wonderlist. You, you kind of jumped into the, some of the uh, yeah, a couple back-end details that were interesting. And, but f- for those that know nothing about Wonderlist, what's the, what's the story? It is a cross-platform synchronizing task manager or to-do list or just place where you put, want, you put all the things you want to organize and eventually do in your life. Um, like ever like Evernote for tasks, kind of like that. Yeah, we we we're friends with Evernote, and we sort of see Evernote and Dropbox as, um, and us as rounding out kind of a suite of tools that maybe compete with the older Office suite type of solutions. Um, but in all of these cases, you know, it all it applies to stuff you would do at work, but it also applies to stuff you just want to do. So people use Wonderlist to store the movies that they want to watch, and or, you know their favorite book lists. And I use it to store weird songs that I want to do cover versions of, including like uploading sample files of myself doing certain parts, that kind of stuff. Um, but from a technical perspective, it's uh, it's cool because you, you also can collaborate with people, um, meaning you can share lists, you can communicate, your, you can comment, but it's really kind of like everything is in real time. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying it's cool like as a user and trying to sell everyone on downloading it. You could, you should, of course, but um, it's cool implementation-wise because effectively what we have to build to make it work is a multi-master replicated multi-user database system which so like from one perspective you can think well this is just a to-do list app but from the technical implementation perspective and we have millions of users millions of active users they're just pounding this back-end system and doing synchronization and it really does have to be multi-master because it works offline it's really hard it's really hard to get right it's been fun so so imagine that i've got it on my phone and i'm I'm typing a new uh, movie that I'd like to see. So at what resolution is it synchronizing with the database? Like how, how often is it pushing up? How does that work? Well, when you, when you type a new thing in and save it, then it synchronizes up if you're online. Um, and it's, it's all changing in the next release, Wonderless 3. So I'll talk about what the next release is because I think we finally really got the sync perfect in the next release. That's what our focus is on, is just speed and, and synchronization. Um, so you type it in, you hit save, it synchronizes, you know, pushes up, changes. If anything changes while you have the app open, like if I'm on a list that's shared with you or I invite you to something, 
you'll actually receive a uh, JSON payload in real time on the app that, you know, well, everything will be changing visually even as you're using the app in real time. So it's pretty much immediate um, when you're online. When you're offline, if you're on a plane or, or just turned off your internet access for some reason, then you can work as long as you want and everything gets queued up. And, and as I said, you have a local database so you're Basically, when you get online, you do a, uh, the same sort of negotiation you would do if you were offline for a long time with a Git repository and you wanted to push up to master. So what were the, the toughest few um, design ideas that you finally got right in the, the third version that's about to come out that kind of nagged you over the, the last year or however, however long they've been nagging? Um, I, I guess the, the primary thing is and this will sound obvious, but like you can't use timestamps for anything in a distributed system. Uh, the way that the, the previous version was created used timestamps in what seemed like a safe way, but it wasn't. Um, so it's a combination of that and the fact that you need some sort of hierarchical uh, versioning of data. And so we looked at a lot of the kind of old literature on the topics, and and specifically implementation-wise, we looked at how Git works uh, because we realized like you could even use Git to power something like this as a synchronization engine. It just probably isn't made for exactly the kind of scale scale we're talking about. Um, so it wasn't a perfect use case. But sync-wise, when you're just talking about data reliability and integrity and how changes merge and override each other, that sort of stuff. Um, the way Git works is a pretty good model. So if you don't have timestamps to, to help sort the order that the, the changes should be applied, how do you how do you figure it out? You, you have to use some sort of unique version. Um, so like in Git, you have SHAWs, uh, and you have... Um, Previous, it's basically like a tree, right? So you know where in the tree a certain change came from, what its parent is. Um, we have done some version of that as well. So if they get applied in a slightly different order than kind of what what really happened in the real world, if there was like an atomic clock that was that was all knowing on all of these commits, then it just whatever, then it just gets applied in the wrong order. Is that the sort of thing you don't worry about then? Yeah, you don't have to because you will know the order for sure. Um, well, so the, so that's the part that I didn't I didn't understand that part. So if I like if I have my cell phone and I have my my uh, I'm on the website and they don't have the same clock, how do you know which one happened first? Ah, uh, yeah. In our world, well, okay, we'll just talk about like you. The way it would work in Git, for example, is you have a tree of changes to a piece of data. This is a simplification that's much easier to draw, but doesn't really work via audio. <laughs> but you, you have a tree of changes. You know the revision that you had of the data when you started editing. So when you make your commit, your commit actually has a parent commit, which is the revision it came from, mm -hmm. right? So if you have a revision three, you edit, you're going to make revision four, although numbers don't actually work in this case um, in a distributed system very well, uh, then the system can automatically know that, okay, this change is based off of versions, but something happened in between, so you need to get the thing that happened 
then create instead of version four, version five, because version four, four already happened while you weren't watching. Right. Cool. Yeah. So ultimately, it ends up being whoever gets in first on a change from a specific revision win or revision wins. But um, that's an edge case that only happens millions of times per hour. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, what do, what role does Rails play now in the in your architecture? Uh, so, we in our new architecture, our old architecture, we had a monolithic Rails app, which is what most people have when they use Rails. Uh, I have spent the last several years of my career destroying monolithic Rails apps, kind of as a uh, as a primary focus of what I do. Um, and this job is no different. So. Now we have a bunch of tiny little services, and lots of them are written in Rails. A lot of that is because, uh, actually, the day that we created all the new services for the new app, uh, or for the new backend for Wonderless 3, we actually created a script to generate all of them with the right names. So, you know, it's like, I don't know, 50 different services running in the backend that started on Rails. Uh, and as I said, Rails is kind of like our first go-to because you can get something up and running so quickly. The conventions are great, et cetera, et cetera. Then we identify places that um, either didn't make sense to start with in Rails or performance has just shown, uh, you know, we should port it to something else, and then we do that. So what are examples, like how how low level are these services? What's a, what's an example of a few of the, the key services that would run in your architecture? Um, you mean the one, or just in, in general, one, not the Rails one specifically? Yeah, so I mean, I think the people that, that haven't decomposed a monolithic Rails app into a bunch of services, uh, I think on a given app it can be hard to imagine maybe, or maybe not that hard to imagine, but hard to imagine the perfect way to go and, and split it up into a bunch of component services. So curious about how yours decomposed. Sure, yeah, so the, the first step I think is kind of obvious. Uh, you can sort of think of the models that you would normally have in your apps or the controllers you would normally have, especially if you're following the RESTful conventions of Rails. Uh, those would instead be services. So, you know, if you have, in our world, of course, we have a thing called task mm -hmm. or a thing called list, right? So we do have a service called lists, which happens to be written in Rails. Um, so that's the first sort of obvious breaking apart that you would do. Um, or that I would do, I should say. And then, how do you handle cross-cutting, you know, things that 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 many of those services have to interact with or use? Yeah, I noticed you almost said cross-cutting concerns. So the answer is obviously aspect-oriented programming. <laughs> but uh, no, um, we so in the case of uh, some of the Rails stuff, we have written and shared gems between things. But ideally, when when problems are really cross-cutting like that, we can do them again in other services that are called from those services. So I'm, I am all for as much separation as we can do without completely destroying the performance of the infrastructure um, because it gives us the flexibility to um, create all these tiny little services in the environment that makes the most sense for them. Um, it also forces our architecture to be heterogeneous, which... I think is good because it is the opposite opposite of homogeneous and monolithic. Like it's really hard to do tight coupling, super tight coupling in a system if 
they're not running in the same process space. And if you're in different languages, you're far less likely to run in the same process space. Right. So this feels like a, it could be a dumb question, but it, it, with that architecture, it seems like there would be very few, if any, database joins. Is that that, that yes. are, are ever occurring? Is that right? That is right, yeah. In fact, as we started breaking things apart, um, ideally the rule is that we're, the services don't share any database connections. So like, you're, not, you're not talking to one database from two different services. Um, and yeah, as we broke things apart, one of the first things I did after I got here in Berlin was to separate the monolithic database underlying Wonderlist into lots of tiny databases. And in so doing, we had to get rid of the joins in the process. <laughs> did, uh, did that cause you to change the type of, of database technology that you use for Wonderlist? No, not really. Um, we did change it. Uh, we went from Postgres to MySQL, which I know sounds backward. Um, well, there's always got to be one guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we did it for a specific reason, and that is another rule we have in our in our system. We have like these overarching kind of uh, philosophical things we apply to the way we build our system. One of the rules is that a server must be uh, immutable which means you create it once and you never change it, you never upgrade it. If you need to upgrade it, you just replace it with a different one that is upgraded. Um, that's really hard to do with a database server. So to cheat and hack around that, we have used uh, Amazon's RDS, their you know, self-hosted, self-managed databases, which work wonderfully for us. Uh, and when we started doing this, they didn't have Postgres support, so we moved to MySQL. Since they have started doing Postgres, we've uh, we've done some of the other extractions into RDS Postgres, and we've even moved some MySQL ones back to Postgres. Hmm. So, given the that you're not using um, joins, and I would think some other of the sort of key features of either Postgres or MySQL, did you consider going to a, a you know key value store, or is that is that bad for some other reason? No, it's probably good for what we're doing. Um, in fact, we're using DynamoDB for some things, but nothing that's seriously core uh, right now. Most of that is because all the code was already written to talk to the SQL databases. Um, but I imagine we will move more and more to, to some non-SQL databases over time when it makes sense. And I believe when we do that, it can get cheaper and easier to manage the infrastructure, but I see it as an optimization step. Is that the is is the bottleneck in the database now, or 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 not given your design? Uh, yeah, I think it'll probably always be in the database. Ultimately, um, we a lot of stuff we do happens asynchronously, and it flows through RabbitMQ mostly for that and like changes fan out in a thousand different directions now. But the asynchronous stuff, we don't worry so much about. It's the synchronous stuff. And yeah, I mean, like most apps that the developers in the world build, it's I.O. bound, and a lot of that I.O. is in the database. That's why we broke it into a bunch of tiny databases, because then you have less contention for the I.O. Um, talk a little bit about the the client programming. So, you said you've got a, a, a client for just about everything, from iPhones to Androids to Mac to Windows, etc. What's yeah. What's it like 
um, what's that experience like of being responsible for this this I don't know constellation of related apps? Um, well, it's really cool. I mean, the, the cool thing about it to me is we build beautiful clients for every platform because they're real native clients. There's no emulator thing or you know one of those trick technologies that lets you build an HTML5 and deploy everywhere. We used to do that. Those are those are good for getting started. Um, so, you know, we can really focus and optimize and, and make as perfect an experience as possible. Uh, for me personally, being responsible for all that, it's both terrifying and exciting. You know, the, the terrifying part is on most of them, compared to the guys that are working on the teams that we have, you know, building those clients, I'm an idiot because uh, I just <laughs> I, I, I don't spend enough time in them compared to them. Uh, so I always sort of feel dumb everywhere I go around, really in the world, but specifically in this office. It just uh, they don't make me feel dumb, but I, you know, I have so many dumb questions. Um, but it's also really fun because I can and should know what's going on in all these places. And clearly, as someone who used to learn a programming language every Saturday morning, uh, working in an environment where I am almost forced to use six or seven languages just to do my normal job. It's pretty appealing, right? It seems like it put a huge premium on there being stability across all of those services. Um, are are each of the clients uh, like how wide is the interface that they're using to talk to the talk to the back end, or is it is it sort of a pretty narrow interface, and then things fan out in back of that interface that they use to do the syncing and and pulling? It, it used to be pretty wide. But with the new architecture we're building, there's basically just one way you do everything. And we're trying to make everything like Rails follow convention over configuration. Um, you know, so like for, especially for our web team, we have a native JavaScript like Chrome app and web app. Um, when we add, we could, we could like whimsically decide to add a whole new area of the application with a new piece of the domain that we don't have yet. Uh, like if we wanted to build a chat application in, that would actually be trivial. The hard part would be building a beautiful UI that users understand, but getting data to synchronize um, across every application would now be just a few lines to add to every application, and data would be syncing. That's kind of cool from that perspective. So just so I understand that, right? So the synchronization, it, it uh, like the, the the service handles synchronization of any type of change. It doesn't matter what the what the thing is. Yeah, exactly. So we send, and, and it really is changes that we send. Yeah. That's another thing that we changed from the previous system. So um, I, I was actually inspired by the way uh, LDAP synchronization works because I spent the early part of my career doing a lot of stuff with LDAP systems administration. Um, and it's all about sending change sets down the wire. So we do that, and, and we have um, SDKs that we're going to open source for each one of our client languages. But in the SDK, then we just, you know, follow a convention, drop some files, and, and suddenly you have a new thing that fully synchronizes end to end. Hmm. When you when you first hear that that Wonderlist is a you know collaborative to do app that's cross platform, you don't you don't immediately imagine all of the technical challenges that seem to 
be there. I mean, I suppose you do because of the scale. I mean, it seems like it would be a, 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 a large problem to solve, but it's interesting to hear the details about what's behind it. Yeah, it's nothing like Facebook or Twitter or something like that, but it's also far from trivial to get right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, living social, just because everyone knows it, and and if you're if you're able, are, are, were the the technical challenges there uh, uh, bigger or smaller than than Wonderlist? Hmm. I guess they're from a technical perspective. Uh, Living Social does much higher load than than Wonderless does. Really, I would have never guessed that. <laughs> yeah, like massive load. So you know, like I at one point I was hacking something on a Saturday morning at Living Social, and I moved one line like accidentally outside of a block somewhere. It still worked. Uh, when I deployed it, it crashed everything because. Uh, we were just even on early on Saturday morning, like the you know one of the down moments uh, in the normal flow of traffic to any site. One little mistake, and you could screw everything up. So, um, yeah, from that perspective, it was it was much harder to deal with. And then, you know, we did some really massive deals where we set uh, e-commerce records while I was there, uh, and the. Uh, the preparation that we would have to do for those was pretty intense. You know, like you can kind of go along at normal capacity for a while, but sometimes, you know, when we knew one of these things was coming, like when we we did a Whole Foods deal, everybody bought that thing, and you know, we were preparing for 10x the traffic to spike on hmm. on that kind of day. So it's really interesting to to have otherwise a pretty normal um, web architecture that's already doing high load and then have to start thinking about what it would be on, you know, how you would deal with it on a day where you have to do 10 X the normal traffic. What was your go-to trick? I mean, cause I, I assume you can't re-architect the entire application just because the sales guys come up with a deal that's going to uh, spike traffic by 10 X. So like if you only had a week to prepare, what, what was your, you know, what was in your toolbox of things to do? Well, we always had more than a week to prepare, and and I don't think there was a go-to trick actually. Uh, well, there I guess there are two things I could mention. One is we had the ability to optionally um, enable or disable features of the system, uh, it would just trivially turn things off, and so we would do that sometimes, and we would even plan to do that sometimes. You know, nice to have stuff that doesn't have to be there and takes any kind of resources. You just turn it off, or at least you're you're prepared to do it if you. Um, there was an amazing trick that that the team did before I got there, but and we never used it after I got there. Where I can't even explain how this could possibly work, but they made the entire experience work with statically rendered files. Um, and they did that in preparation for their Super Bowl, the, the year that they had a Super Bowl ad. And so you just have to, they just turned off all, all of the personalization features and, and, and did it that way so that everyone saw the same page? or, or? It, was, it was much more complicated than that. Like, the site actually functioned huh. like normal. Um, it's pretty amazing. But I, I can't explain it to you, so I just have to stick this idea in your head and not talk <laughs> anything else about it. Well, but it, it was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> but really, what we would do 
do is just go through and like optimize the hell out of things and really you know look at it, every piece of the system. So we had people on the team. I say had because I'm not sure who's who's on the team right now doing this, but back then we had people on the team that were just really good at finding performance problems, and they would go through everything with a fine tooth comb, and the site would just be amazingly better when they finished. But it was the sort of effort that wasn't worth doing normally because it was already performing really well under really high load. Um, it'd be just like an optimization pass that would that would go through on occasion and these special deals would force us to do it. All right, so I don't have a good segue for this, but we should do our second sponsor. And uh, I'm just going to get into it. So uh, well, I'll ask a question of you to get into this. So do you guys have a CI server that you use? We do. Do you want me to tell you what it is? I don't. <laughs> but I want to tell you about another uh continuous integration service that one could use called the CodeShip. Uh, CodeShip is continuous deployment made simple. You can set up uh, your CI solution on CodeShip in a few steps and automatically deploy to uh, production when all your tests have passed. They've got great support for lots of languages and test frameworks, including just about every one that Chad mentioned. They've got integration uh, with GitHub and uh, Bitbucket uh, you can deploy to cloud services like Heroku, uh, Amazon Web Services, Nojitsu, Google App Engine, or your own servers. Uh, you can try everything out for free, uh, and in setup only takes about three minutes. If you go to codeship.io, that's uh, C-O-D-E-S-H-I-P, codeship.io, uh, you can learn the uh, about the details. Check out their blog at blog.codeship.io, and on... Uh, on the front page of CodeShip.io, they've got a couple-minute video that I think gives a pretty good overview of, of both the service and a little bit about the company. So uh, if you're uh, interested in setting up a CI server or possibly uh, switching to a new one, uh, why don't you support CodeShip? All right. Thanks for saying that you use CI and not mentioning him. <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, all right. So, uh, last topic is, or maybe last two topics is, let's talk about the future of Rails. So, uh, you said that you would characterize your relationship as a little bit bored, and uh, I think a lot of people feel that way. I mean, it's uh, well, a lot of people that program in Rails have been doing so for a while now, and it's relatively stable. And you know, Ruby's no longer the new kid on the block, etc. Um, so what do, you, what do you imagine the future of Rails is? Do you think that something breathes life, or not life, but excitement back into it for you? Or, or would you actually rather go the other direction and get more boring, but you know, higher performance, more stable, etc.? Yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think I would rather it stay boring. Um, and boring is a good thing right now, you know. Like, if Rails were to be thrilling, it would probably mean it just keeps changing. Uh, then again, who knows? There might be you know, Rails 5, which is, again, a huge leap from Rails 4. So I, I really don't know at all what's going to happen. Um, but I'm totally satisfied with Rails if it just keeps getting to be a better and better version of what it already is, which is exactly what it's been doing for the past few years. So... Uh, 
Yeah, I think I think it's good to be bored by your tools. Um, not not in an unpleasant way, but you know, developers especially just love to talk about their tools, and they love to try to evangelize their tools and and identify with their tools. I think to an unhealthy level, um, even when it's the bleeding edge ones, like Ruby and Rails used to be, it's too easy to box yourself into a corner because you're you're so prone to like fight about your thing being the best thing that it's easy to get to where you don't recognize when you're wrong, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So I you know, Rails being a, being a boring tool is actually a good thing from that perspective because you'll use it as a tool. Right. I love the architecture you described at Wonderless because it it makes it safe to use um, you know a variety of tools and not not fall totally in love with any one of them or feel like you're trapped. It's, it sounds liberating, I think. Yeah, it is. I mean, I really like. I wanted it. I, I've been at places, you know, my whole career where there's always someone sitting around saying, "Man, I wish I could use this or that, but I can't." and and if they were offered a job to use the other thing, they might go take it because they want to work in the environment they're passionate about at the time. I just want to remove all those sorts of things from people's heads. Um, now, you said it's safe, and it's true. Organizationally, it's safe. However, if someone goes and deploys our first Elixir service, it's not exactly safe because if it fails, you know, none of us have done it yet. Uh, and it's on that person. So, you know, we have one guy who loves Elixir, he is free to deploy something in Elixir, and he knows no one would be upset with him. But he hasn't done it, I think, because he doesn't yet feel comfortable being the one who introduces that. So, you know, what we have now is a team of people who make their own responsible decisions about what technology to use. Don't feel like the organization is stopping them from doing what they want to do, but they get to make the decision when they believe it's right to make. Right. Well, I like that. I mean, that flips the usual dialogue around, though, and that's nice. Instead of the, you know, the company and the management saying, you can't do this, it's, it's instead, you know, putting the onus on the person to, to decide if they're up for the responsibility. I think that's, that, yeah. seems, that seems healthy. Yeah, I think in general, as a manager, um, you, you need to give your team members the authority to make decisions about how they do their job, but also they have to be accountable for the decisions they make. And if you put those two words together, uh, it's a good framework for thinking about just about anything you do as a manager. Yeah. So let's let's end with that. Um, you, it sounds like you still program, um, and you, you obviously have quite a bit of management responsibilities. So h- how do you balance those two? How do you decide how to use your time? I probably do it poorly. Um, <laughs> me, me too. <laughs> so at Living Social, I had a huge team, and I never programmed. And I think if I had done programming at Living Social, it would have been because I was shirking my real responsibility. It would have been completely irresponsible of me to do. Um, here, when when I made the decision to leave and come out here and work on Wonderlist, it was I think there were twenty developers at the time. I knew it was going to be hands-on, and I was excited about that. So I have chosen to make this be a more hands-on job and and less of a management job. And so far, I think it's working. Um, I say maybe not that well, only because I probably just get my head too deep into the editor sometimes. But my desire is, in general, as a manager, to be more of a coach than a manager 
manager anyway. I hate the word manage because I, I don't think we hire people that need to be managed here. But we do hire people that are human and therefore need help uh, learning to communicate with each other better. Uh, not that I'm the best communicator in the world, but at least it's my job to facilitate communication, to help people make good choices about you know, their code and their architectures, and uh, to remove friction where I can. Fortunately, I think if I, if I just go from team to team programming with them, I can accomplish that without having to do status meetings and you know, that kind of junk. So that's how I try to do it. I can't say I'm perfect at all, but uh, that's my approach. At what size do you think it would that, that approach would break down? You'd have to go back to your living social sort of all management all the time approach. Well, my theory is that we can just keep going indefinitely, but we need to we need to get a little more structured about the process of um, kind of the anarchy that we allow. <laughs> you need structured anarchy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm not the first person to say this, but I'm thinking about like Fred George. Fred George's writing is in talks on the topic of programmer anarchy, the way GitHub works, the way Valve works. Um, I've written up a, a process that sort of, uh, treats the way we do management of the business and of our product development like a game. So it has rules. Every game has rules or else it actually wouldn't even be fun. But people are free to play within those rules. So that's my hope, that we can that we can construct a process that scales even better than the thing I described that I was doing before, but is also um, liberating and, and provides authority and accountability to every single person of the team just like we have right now with programming and technology choices, but for everything about how we do work here. I was going to say, it, I, I, it doesn't seem coincidental that there are such parallels between the sort of distributed computing uh, topics that you brought up before and your goals for management. That's, Not at all, no. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, let's go through a few plugs. So for Wonderless, for those that have not uh, used it, what's the best way to dive right in? Probably your favorite app store, um, and it's Wonder as in German Wunder, so with a U, Wonderlist, and you can also go to wonderlist.com. All right. And when it is, is it kind of free for some purposes and then paid for others, or how does that work? Yeah. It, as an individual, it's free for just about anything you'll want to do with it. So there's no reason you shouldn't just go ahead and download it right now and, and try it and start sharing the, the, the coolest way to get an immediate benefit is to create a grocery list and share it with whoever you live with and then like put stuff in there and watch things get checked off when, the, when they're in the store or when you're in the store. It's really nice. Just use it for that and you'll find that you'll probably end up using it for a bunch of other stuff too. <laughs> uh, my family is moving shortly, so maybe I'll, uh, I think I'm going to, after, after I get off this call, I'll, uh, download it and share our moving list uh, with my wife and daughter and kids. Perfect. Yeah, that's a good idea. All right, what uh, uh, what else uh, would you like people to know about what you care about right now? Um, I, I am really interested in the idea of immutable infrastructure. So if you run back-end systems at all, which you probably do as a Rails person, since you're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast, I think you should Google immutable infrastructure and do some thinking about that. And, and please 
use this as sort of a segue into not ever building a monolithic Rails app again. And if you have one, start tearing it up. Like that, that's the thing I think the Rails world, and I say world and not community because it's way too big to be a community, but that's what the Rails world needs to do right now is to stop building these monoliths that people have to then throw away. It would be really great if we could just build things that are beautiful like they are the day you generated them and they stay beautiful and they're easy to maintain, and I don't think you're going to be able to do that in the monolith. Where can... Uh where can people connect with you if they'd like to do that? On Twitter, or what's your preference? Twitter is a good way. Um, at Chad Fowler on Twitter, or you can just email me if you want, chad at chadfowler.com. A lot of people do that. I'm always happy to, to respond, though these days I'm kind of slow, so apologies in advance. All right. Any final words before we uh, call it a day? I would just like to say that I'm very pleased to be back on the podcast nine years after my first appearance. And, uh, and I, I looked at the date. Well, I mean, it was, it was like, what, September of 2005, I think? Yeah, it was. It's <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah. And, and then I would also like to say thank you to uh, the people on the Rails Core and the Ruby Core teams and, and all the people who run Ruby Gems, run the conferences, all that stuff. The, the Ruby and Rails world is still incredibly vibrant, and uh, what's happening today is just a more professional job of what we used to do nine or ten years ago. I really appreciate that. Great. Well, I think that's the perfect uh, perfect positive thought to end on. So, Chad, thanks a ton for, for joining me today, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks. All right, bye-bye. Bye.